Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, mother the Mary of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to Jerusalem. What do you say? Let's go. Let's go see. Just like, just like Mary Magdalene, just like the mother of James, just like Salome. Let's, let's go check it out. It's, it's Easter Sunday and, and let's go to the tomb. Let's, let's try to put ourselves into the gospel story together this morning. Now, we're going to have to get past this guy first. People ask me all the time, is it safe to go to Israel? Is Israel safe? And I always say, man, it's like the safest place on earth. Everybody over there has got a machine gun. Of course it's safe. It's like living here. Everybody there is very, very happy to make friends. Everybody except that guy on my left. I don't think he's happy about anything. But when I go and when we take our groups, we just jump into the middle of whatever's going on at the time. I mean, I'm, I'm a man of peace, and I want to I try to be like my Lord. Go to that next slide. There it is right there. Try to, try to jump into the middle of whatever it is. But today, we're going to Jerusalem, okay? So let's, let's go to Jerusalem, and let's head to the northwest part of the city. This is on the opposite end of the city from where the temple is. And in Jesus' day, where we're going was just outside the city walls. Jerusalem's walls were expanded in 44 AD to include this area. But in Jesus' time, this was outside the city gates on top of an old abandoned rock quarry. According to the very earliest, earliest Christian traditions, this is the place where Jesus was crucified and buried, right here. Christians worshipped here at this site from the very earliest weeks and months after Jesus' death and resurrection, right here. We know this because when the Romans captured Jerusalem in AD 66, they recognized this place in their writings, in their government documents, as a holy site for Christians. Eusebius writes at the end of the third, of the third century that Christians were worshiping here at that time in AD 66. And he describes this as the place where Jesus was buried. When Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire, he adopted Christianity as his own personal religion in A.D. 313. And his mother, Queen Helena, was dismayed by the neglect of this area as a Christian holy site, as the site where Jesus was buried, a site that had been hallowed by Jesus' followers for almost 300 years. 
And so with Constantine's blessings and authority and money, she led the efforts to build a shrine and a church over the tomb of Jesus right here. That started in 326 A.D. And they dug out the rock all the way around the site and they uncovered these ancient tombs underneath. All these tombs date back to the first century during Jesus' time. And so that gives it even more credibility as the place where our Lord was buried. These crosses on the walls were carved by hand and they were found just one layer up from these ancient tombs. Constantine built a shrine. It's called an edicule around the tomb. That happened in the late 320s. Some of those columns that are there today are still original from the early 4th century. The Egyptians destroyed a lot of this church in 1009. The present church that stands there today was built in 1144. In the Middle Ages, the Crusaders added a whole lot. They almost doubled the amount of space uh, inside that church and on that property. This beautiful dome on top of the whole thing was added in the 1960s. But you walk into this place, and there's an immediate sense of awe and reverence, holiness. This site is sacred. It's consecrated. It's highly significant. And you walk around in there, you can't help but tiptoe. And whisper. And you look around and you realize Jesus isn't here. And you can almost hear the words of the angel rising up from those 2,000 year old tombs and echoing off the ancient walls. He is not here, He has risen. I've been to Elvis's grave in Memphis, He's still there. I've been to Stevie Ray Vaughan's grave in Dallas, Texas. Church, he's still there. I haven't been there, but I'm assuming, in fact, I'm certain Grant is still buried in Grant's tomb. But I have been to the tomb of Jesus in Jerusalem. And church, he ain't there. He is risen. The resurrection of Jesus is the very foundation of our Christian beliefs. It is the core of Brothers and sisters, it is everything. It is the very center of our Christian faith, and it's got to stay there. The resurrection has got to be the center of who we are as followers of Jesus. When Paul was on trial for his very life before the Jewish leaders, he summed up the criminal charges against him in Acts 23. He says, this is why I'm in trouble right here, and it has everything to do with the resurrection. Verse 6, he says, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Very next chapter, Paul tells Governor Felix, it's because of the resurrection from the dead that I stand on trial before you today. When they take him to King Agrippa in chapter 26, Paul says the exact same thing. It is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. It is because of this hope that they're accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 
When Paul has to preach in a different way to the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers in Athens, Acts 17 says, Paul preached the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have one of the very earliest Christian creeds. By the way, it's kind of a side note here. Can we stop saying we don't believe in creeds or we don't have any creeds or we don't use any creeds? Can we just stop saying that? Because a creed is just a statement of belief. That's all it is. That's what creed means. This is what I believe, right? So if you ever used to use those old five steps of salvation, that's a creed, okay? Uh, if you've heard people say, you know, we only call Bible things by Bible names, we only do Bible things in Bible ways, that's a creed. You follow me? When we say no creed but Christ, that's a creed, okay? So a creed is just a statement of belief. It's just a, a short little way to remember what we believe and how to say and articulate what we believe. Listen, in our churches and in our country, we're becoming more and more biblically illiterate, right? We don't know what we believe, much less how to articulate it. I'd say it's time to return to some creeds, you know? It helps us. Well, there's lots of creeds in the Bible, and this is one of the earliest ones in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what we read together and proclaimed out loud as we were eating and drinking the meal together. This is a creed. What do we believe? What should we believe, right? Remind me of what we believe. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the good news I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this good news, this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly, it says, to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. By the way, he's talking about the Old Testament, right? I mean, when Paul's writing this, there is no New Testament. So it's interesting to keep that in mind as well. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says, this is first importance. This is the top priority. This, this is the whole deal. These are the mountains we die on right here. Apart from this, nothing else matters. Jesus died for our sins. Amen. He was dead and buried. Amen. This is what we believe. He was raised and now he's alive. And we know it's a fact because he appeared to all these witnesses. Paul says, go ask them yourselves. They saw him. They ate and drank with him. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them about it. This is the real deal. This really happened. The bodily resurrection of Jesus' church, it is gospel truth. And we uphold this truth. As disciples of Christ... We stand firm on the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Look at this, this creed, this summary of belief, whatever you want to call it. You know, we talk about doctrine sometimes, 
You know, we're real concerned about doctrine. Is that sound doctrine? Is he preaching doctrine? What is our doctrine? Church, this is our doctrine. This is it right here. And this is all we need, right? Both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. It's right here. That's what makes death real. That's what makes resurrection possible. Jesus' vicarious atonement. He died, it says, for our sins. His bodily resurrection, which guarantees our own resurrections. And then the authority of the scriptures. Outside of this, I'm not sure there's much else to consider. There's certainly nothing else to argue about. The factual truth of the resurrection of Jesus proves and validates who Jesus is. But it also eliminates any ideas that anybody else might have that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Or that Christianity is just a good moral way to live a good moral life or a better life. Verse 14, it says, clearly and unapologetically, if the bodily resurrection is not real, then Christianity is worthless. Jesus is not a good teacher. He's a liar. He's a fraud. If the resurrection is not real, Christianity is not just one good way to live a moral life. It's a scam. It's evil. If Christ is not raised... Everything we do and say is meaningless. If Christ is not raised, then death is not conquered. If Jesus is not alive today, if he is not resurrected, we don't have any hope. None. I don't have any hope. Neither do you. Verse 19, we are to be pitied more than anybody else on earth. But brothers and sisters... Jesus was raised. Jesus is risen. He is. He's not there in those 2,000-year-old tombs in Jerusalem. Jesus is right now reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven in the kingdom of God. That's where he is today, and that's where he's going to be forever. And he is interceding for us right now. And because of that, we have hope we have forgiveness. We have salvation and immortality. We have eternal life right now. Look at verse 20, right? First fruits. Christ was raised, so we're going to be raised. Christ has indeed, verse 20, been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Your resurrection is guaranteed. Jesus says in John 14, because I live, you also will live. Because Jesus lives, you are going to live forever. We experience and we possess the power of Christ Jesus' resurrection as we lean into it, as we give ourselves to it. We yield and we submit to Christ's resurrection and we live it. We live it. Listen to Paul. You talk about living the resurrection. Listen to this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. 
and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ. Don't you want to know? Don't you want to know the power of Christ Jesus' resurrection? Ashley Reedy, Dane Higgins, James Kennedy, Cole Swanner, Skipper Hunt's son, Carla Fender's dad, Ken Casseroller, Pat Holt, Debbie Van Stavern, John McKinney, all baptized believers. All united to God through Jesus Christ. All of them followers of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, they have died like Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, they will be raised just like Jesus. And so will you. So will you. This is true. Jesus goes before us. We follow Jesus. He leads, we follow into death and then into resurrection. Church, the resurrection of Jesus is so strong and it is so powerful. It is our hope, church. It is our trumpet call. The resurrection is the compelling force behind our Christian lives. It is the imperative push that drives our Christian mission. In the Bible, the resurrection of the Lord is a big deal, and it ought to be a big deal in our lives. It ought to be a big deal in our church. It ought to be at the very center of who we are and everything we say and do. Because if we'll embrace the resurrection of Jesus, if we'll claim the promises of his resurrection as our own, it will radically impact the way we see ourselves the way we view others, and the way we interact with the world around us. We'll have no problem risking our well-being, risking our reputations, risking our very lives for the sake of the gospel and our Lord Jesus Christ. You follow me on this? He's risen. He has risen. And so have you. That changes everything. Resurrection means we're not worried about death. Not anymore. And so my first priority is not my personal security. It's not preserving the institutions. It's not saving the country. He has risen. It's bigger than all that, right? It's absurd. He has risen. And so, because he has risen, we're not scared of anything. We're, we're risk takers for the things that last forever. That makes us dangerous, right? Amen. A Christian hospital can accept more welfare patients than might be economically advisable because it knows that God's love for the poor does not end if that hospital ends, Right? You follow me? A Christian business can hire ex-cons and former felons 
because it knows God's grace and forgiveness does not depend on the survival of that business, right? Professors at a Christian university can call for total disarmament in the middle of a cold war because they know the future of the world does not depend on the future of their nation, right? It's so much bigger than that. Christians can risk their lives. Why? Because we know this life is not the end. Stand with me, church. Let's stand together. I believe the resurrection is inviting us. I believe the resurrection of Jesus is calling us to walk through that door. All of us as followers of Jesus, knowing the resurrection, we walk through that door into a brand new world. Where the ultimate reality is not death, it is everlasting life in the one who brought our Lord Jesus out of the grave. To know the resurrection, to live the resurrection means we live boldly, we live courageously, no fear, breaks off. We're full steam ahead. He has risen. And so a Christian church like ours, we can take bolder risks in loving our enemies and forgiving the ones who've done us harm. He has risen. And so we can take courageous risks to stand with the outsiders and protect the helpless and defend the weak. He has risen, which means we can say yes to bigger gospel dreams and we can say no thank you to maintaining the status quo. We can risk everything and we can give everything in denying self and sacrificing self, knowing that the salvation of the world and the salvation of my body and soul depends on our God's loving and powerful hands. We can be a resurrection people who live to give life to others. And that will bring glory and praise to our God today and forevermore. Amen.